G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. It is good to be with you, but Dad, I must admit, as you alluded to a little bit on the podcast last week, as we're dealing with a topic today that both you and I have related to a little bit in the past, we've had a few off-air conversations about this over the years, I maybe haven't been as excited about this podcast as other podcasts to really get into the weeds, into a topic that, as we say, you and I both relate to a little bit. So we'll be speaking about perfectionism today, and we've called the episode The Pitfalls of Perfectionism. So do you want to just give us a bit of a brief run? down what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, yes, Rowan, and it has been an Achilles heel for both of us in different ways at different times, hasn't it? But there's something about perfectionism that even though it might relate to in some ways high ideals or striving that can be good, there are many downsides. There are many pitfalls to perfectionism, and we're going to be exploring some of that today and how in some ways it can add to unnecessary stresses and interfere with our functioning, even our productivity in different ways. So we're exploring the pitfalls of perfectionism. Well, there's that quote from Voltaire that came up during the week being, perfect is the enemy of good. And it's a sort of thing where on face value, it sort of doesn't necessarily make the most sense when you, when you read it for the very first time. But I'm interested to unpick that a little bit because it seems to me that a little bit about perfectionism is as much to do with the pursuit of perfect as it is as much as having something perfect in the first place. So I'm interested to break that down a little bit more with you because it seems to me that the pursuit of perfection is as much where we can get into trouble as the perfection itself, if that makes sense. Yes, and one thing that gets across that notion is there's another term that we sometimes use for perfectionism, unrelenting standards. And the idea of unrelenting standards is the notion of if our standards become too rigid, too harsh, we can be too driven with things. And I think many people can probably relate to that idea that there was something they so much wanted to achieve in a certain way, put such pressures on themselves that actually things didn't turn out so well. And so we're exploring that. And maybe the conditions that help us still aim high, but not get so caught in the trap of perfectionism. Well, you alluded to it a little bit there, but I think there's something about perfectionism which relates to that idea of striving, but it may not necessarily be the same. So do you want to help us differentiate a little bit? What actually is perfectionism? Okay, well, when we think of perfectionism, we think of three main components to it. And one does get back to the unrelenting standards. So what we might look at in terms of expectations, our expectations being unrealistically high or rigid. Now, if our expectations are unrealistically high, then we're likely setting ourselves up for failure. And so that will be very stressful in itself. But also if they're rigid, our expectations are rigid, it means that if something, maybe an obstacle comes up or there's some challenge or we're not on the top of our game for whatever reason at that particular time, we can be unduly discouraged if we don't have some flexibility in our expectations, allowing for circumstances. For example, many of us would have had to relax some of our expectations around work or home life or whatever routines or whatever in the last year with COVID. If we expected to perform in just the same ways as we had prior, then we could be getting caught up with rigid expectations. But there's another component if we base our self-worth on achievement. So there's this notion, oh, for me to feel good about myself, for me to feel that I'm doing things more than good enough or in a way that's acceptable to me, well, then I have to strive at this very high level. And that can be a real trap. Then the other indication is if our striving and the way we go about it, if it leads to negative consequences, but we persist. For example, we're getting burnt out, it's disrupting our sleep, it's impacting on our health, it's detracting from our relationships or time we spend in leisure activities that might otherwise be important to us. So there's a downside, but we keep on pressing on. So that's the three things, the unrealistic expectations, basing our self-worth on our achievement and negative consequences resulting from that, but we keep on pushing on. And I think there's a little bit culturally as well that seems to be pushing us towards some of these notions in terms of in society you want to strive and you want to succeed and you want to achieve and 
there's an element to which I think we can almost hide behind perfectionism in terms of thinking it's a good thing. It's a good thing to want to succeed in certain areas. But I remember having a conversation with you one time and, and it was a real sort of revelation for me that there's an element to which perfectionism is actually related to avoidance. It's not necessarily about wanting to be perfect across all areas at all times. There actually is an element of wanting to avoid certain things. So do you want to just speak to that a little bit in terms of how perfectionism relates to avoidance? Okay, well, one thing, for example, is looking to be perfectionistic is also aiming for a whole lot of control over circumstances. It's looking to control the outcome of things, even if they're challenging circumstances, we should really be operating at this super high kind of level. We might not be allowing for various kind of challenges or adjustments that we might need to make that are uncomfortable in some way. So to press on as though we should get a 100% result, we should be fully in control, is sometimes denying that there might be circumstances that are challenging to us that we can't necessarily do our best. Also, with perfectionism, we might be very concerned about other people's approval. For example, we might be trying to impress our colleagues, our parents, others in certain kind of ways. So we might be looking to avoid feelings of compromised self-worth, if you like, or maybe feeling that we're not so worthy if we don't achieve at a very high kind of level rather than find other ways of dealing with our relative approval or disapproval. So there are a number of ways it can come up but also perfectionism can lead to things like procrastination as we'll talk about later on where you might be putting things off and putting things off by telling yourself oh no it has to be at such a certain standard that I can't start this now I can't start writing this book I can't start on this project I can't create this program or some other pursuit because we're waiting for the ideal conditions for that to occur we might be forever putting off things that it might be worth doing well enough or more than well enough because we're waiting for the optimal circumstances to arise. And that certainly comes up often with people's writing, for example, thinking, oh, I need the perfect kind of conditions to be able to start writing this novel or research project or whatever. But in many people's lives, those optimal conditions don't arise and we have to make do with the opportunities that are there. So there are a range of ways that perfectionism is looking for that uber control, if you like, that over control and maybe not dealing with some of the messiness or challenges or difficulties of everyday life where sometimes our efforts might be compromised in some way. And so it seems from what you're saying there that there's an element to which people can be quite high functioning with perfectionism. If someone's going through the task of writing a book, they're obviously in a pretty good place at that time to be able to confront such a task voluntarily like that. But what I wonder now is... How does it present in a clinical setting? Because I think that'll give us some clues as to where perfectionism can really get us into trouble in different ways. Well, one of the ways that it comes up is with depression because perfectionism is probably about the number one personality attribute that most predisposes people toward depression. And it is to do with these unrelenting standards. So someone might be really struggling with stresses at work, but it turns out that they're putting extra pressures on themselves Or someone might be looking to impress others in a certain kind of way and concerned about whether they're getting that positive regard to feel worthwhile or not. There's an intensity about it of people trying to prove themselves in a certain way that might reflect a level of insecurity behind that. And look, I just might mention as well, that sometimes comes up in situations where people have been pushed by family or cultural circumstances. I'd say often our education system pushes hard for that kind of external achievement and perhaps that's probably one of the reasons why, say with positive education, there's more emphasis on well-being in other ways and looking at promoting character strengths and other aspects of our development rather than just a focus, for example, on academic achievement or sporting achievement. But certainly with many people who are depressed, there's this sense of falling short. And if people have had very harsh or unrelenting standards, and then if people do become depressed and they're falling short further of what they would typically do, that can become 
even more of a vicious cycle where the person feels that they're falling even further short of what they should, being very self-critical, saying how pathetic their attempts might be, that they're not even performing as well as they used to, and that can become a real vicious cycle. So with many people with depression, part of it is helping recognise these underlying unrelenting standards and for people to make allowance for the challenges that they're facing, including being affected by depression or anxiety that might interfere with their functioning in some ways. But it also comes up in a number of other conditions like, say, social anxiety, and it might be about giving a talk or something like that where the person's concerned about whether the way they express themselves is seen to meet a certain standard. So how people appear to others can be affected by that. When we think of obsessive-compulsive disorder, someone trying to order aspects of their life if you like, in certain ways that can then be a kind of control in terms of how things appear, trying to get one's world in a certain kind of more perfect order, so to speak. Comes up with eating disorders. Maybe if people have an unrealistic ideal about thinness, for example, restricting their food intake, and that's often based on some rigid expectations about how their body should look, And then I'd say also burnout. We see that often with people who are driving themselves very hard, say in their work life, to the cost of other parts of their life and stresses affecting their mind and body because they're pushing so hard with striving for what might be unrealistic or very harsh expectations and standards. Well, ironically, Dad, for the perfectionism episode, it seems we've got a friendly neighbour over there with a power tool, so apologies for everyone who can hear that. But in a way, it's good to be testing our perfectionism with something like this. But it seems to me from what you're saying there that there's an element to which the word should comes into it. In terms of you spoke about it there, but some of the ways that people deal with perfectionism, such as OCD and eating disorders, it seems to me there's a real element of control that comes into it in terms of wanting to gain control, in terms of one of the things that we spoke about last week on the podcast was that idea of personal agency. But it seems to me with perfectionism that maybe this idea of personal agency can go a little bit too far in terms of there's going to be some situations that are outside our control. We're not necessarily going to be able to perform at the standards that we want to and it's how that we deal with those is how we deal with our perfectionism. Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it and highlighting the word should. I think you're right with that. And we sometimes say that there's nothing that causes more distress than the word should in the English language. This emphasis on must, have to, should, it has the theme of rigid and harsh standards to it. So often when people have harsh expectations of success versus failure, I should succeed, I should be performing at this level even though I've been recently ill or injured or something like that. The other thing is to do with approval. I should get other people's approval or I should have other people be impressed by what I'm doing, that kind of thing. Excessive concerns about approval as well as success versus failure often feed perfectionism in a certain way. Well, it's interesting hearing you say that there because it seems to me that there's an element to which perfectionism is almost like a spectrum. It's almost as if some of the disorders that we speak about and you spoke about before they're almost as if we get to a threshold of perfectionism that causes us distress and I imagine the fact that it does cause us distress and that we push on with it without necessarily looking for solutions is part of what makes up the perfectionism in itself. But I wonder if someone hasn't quite reached that threshold yet, so they're not necessarily developed symptoms of OCD or or something like that, what are some of the signs that someone may have developed perfectionistic tendencies, but they may not necessarily be experiencing the acute distress that we associate with some of those disorders that you spoke about there? Okay, so some of the more subtle signs of perfectionism. And so different from the more obvious signs, if people are getting really burnt out and stressed and driving themselves into the ground because they're working 16, 18 hours a day on a certain project and not taking breaks and things like that, that would be pretty obvious. But the more subtle signs can include procrastination, putting things off. This might look like the opposite of having high standards, but usually procrastination comes from people having unrealistically high standards or rigid standards. So it's hard for people to start because once you start and you make some effort at something, then you can compare 
what you're producing or what you're doing with a certain standard. And people might avoid that experience of falling short of doing something well enough by not even doing it in the first place or putting it off. So procrastination behind that unrealistic standards. It can also be giving up easily. Again, it might look like the opposite of perfectionism, but if people give up easily, they might say later on, oh, well, look, circumstances didn't enable me to keep on continuing, but it might be a way of avoiding comparing your end performance or an outcome with some unrealistically rigid goal. So giving up and having some excuse for it, perhaps, is also a form of avoiding facing that falling short of your expected standards. I heard a really stark example of that recently watching the tennis and Bernard Tomic, Australian tennis player, I'm sure everyone knows out there. Uh, and he made the comment, basically it was something to do with, you know, oh, if I was to try, I would have been top 10 sort of thing. And, you know, he's made comments in the past about all his money and all this sort of stuff. But it seems to me from hearing Bernard Tomic speak that he just doesn't try because he was such a celebrated junior. He had so much success in the past that he almost extrapolated it out from there and went, well, if I'd tried, I would have got to exactly where I wanted to go. So that means that I don't need to try because I can always hold on to that. So I wonder if that's a a quite stark example of perfectionism in in the public light. I think that is an example and that's, that's giving up. Some people avoid tasks altogether or they might avoid playing a sport altogether that they are otherwise very good at because, again, they don't want to face that comparison with their expectations. And, um, but there are also some other subtle signs. Another thing is seeking reassurance, repeatedly seeking reassurance, maybe from co-workers or a boss or family members about something that you're doing. And, again, it's this concern compared with just, say, doing something and then letting it be whatever it is and see how people respond to it, but doing it for the value of doing it in the first place, this concern of is it good enough, is it perceived to be good enough can lead to seeking that reassurance or checking things a lot, keeping on checking what we're doing over and over and much more than necessary maybe, which is again a way of a fear of making mistakes maybe. Being very slow to do things because we're so painstakingly trying to do it that we're not just dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but really, again, over-checking or over-delaying it, trying to get things just right. And sometimes even making lists to the nth degree. If we go excessively with kind of lists or trying to order ourselves in what we're doing, this might be a way of, again, trying to get excessive control to see that we've done everything just right. Well, again, hearing you describe some of the ways that perfection manifests it really does seem to come back to that idea of control that really hammered at home for me talking about just the list of things that could come up because as you go through every one of those it just seems that there is a real aspect of someone who is perfectionistic wanting to just have control over as many aspects as as they can and that's where you see with that control and the desire for excessive control people are actually quite anxious while they're procrastinating or giving up or seeking reassurance, over-checking, it's related to anxiety, this sense of a threat of not meeting a standard that we should otherwise meet and what could follow on from that. But it interferes with our output. So that's an example, things like procrastinating, giving up, where we might feel anxious, but we're not really producing very much either. And it's very different from an approach of like having a go at something looking to put in a real effort at something, but within balance of our other demands and what time we have and things like that. But having a go, especially having a go at what's important to us, things that are really important to us, we can still strive. But part of it is while we strive, still making an allowance for, well, making mistakes. As we say also, that notion of learning to fail rather than failing to learn, being prepared to make mistakes, being prepared for things to not go so well, but keeping on producing, if you like. Ultimately, we're going to feel more satisfied in life, greater sense of achievement, if we're also doing things that are worthwhile for us, even if they don't have to be done perfectly. It's interesting having a chat to you about this during the week because one thing that came up to do with perfectionism, which I'd never heard before, but it seems to really relate there as well, but it's that idea that perfectionists are more likely to attribute a slip-up 
to a personality trait in terms of if someone makes a mistake, the perfectionist is more likely to think, well, that person has a deficiency in that area of their personality functioning. And I wonder if from what you're saying there, it's almost as if we're applying that filter to ourself as a perfectionist in terms of we're saying, look, I'm, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not up to this. But we're almost using a sweeping statement to describe something which is potentially a lot more temporary in terms of I'm not able to get over this obstacle and that could potentially stop us from engaging in the task in the first place, I wonder. Yes, I think that's an important thing and I noticed that more too in preparing for this too and looking at perfectionism. That stood out to me as something that I hadn't picked up so much on before but this idea of, yes, looking at some slip-up as relating to a personality trait. So it might be, oh, they did this, that shows they're weak. Or, you know, that shows that they're a bit stupid. Or that shows that they're just not conscientious. And these broader kind of things where if we applied that, say, to a work colleague who might have slipped up, they might have extra stresses happening in their life in a certain kind of way. But if we use that judgy kind of approach, if you like, that might be far less effective than having a way of maybe pointing out some kind of slip up in a certain way, in a non-judgmental way that, again, gives the person a chance to address it rather than dismissing them as having these you know, poor trays. But I think, like you're saying, that would tend to come from a person doing that to themselves. Oh, I slipped up, that's weak. Or how pathetic I did such and such. Or, gee, I'm stupid for making that mistake. Or, gee, I should be more resilient or strong-willed with such and such. If we're going to use these more global attributions, if you like, these more global statements or judgments about ourselves if we slip up, that is actually going to be debilitating maybe in the long run. That is not going to help our functioning or performance in the long run. It'll tend to weaken us in some way. So giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt at times and letting ourselves maybe slip up at times without being too hard on ourselves, that's a good counter to perfectionism. Well, I think we see it come up in sport a little bit in terms of the way that we appraise our sports stars at certain times. And look, Dad, I'll put my hand up. I'm maybe a little bit guilty of this. You well know this. But sometimes you hear stories of, of people being written off early in their first year. They might do something. They might, you know, duck their head in AFL and they're seen as weak rather than doing a weak act that they can then improve on later on. They can get better and they can completely change. But I find it interesting how we almost write people off, particularly in sport, at this kind of personality level. I think Jack Watts is one that comes to mind who was a number one draft pick Basically, within his first tackle, where he was gang tackled by three people, everyone went, he's not up to it. And that so became the narrative of his career, even though no one was to know how he was going to perform over his career from that one act in his first game. So I seem to see it come up in sport a little bit in terms of how we write people off like that. Yes, and it can make a more dramatic story, can't it, if you say, oh, this shows that someone's not up to it or they're weak or whatever. I think what you're saying is a good reminder to take with a grain of salt some things that we hear about a rumour of another person, some things that we might read in the newspapers about someone. It's easy for people to overgeneralise about someone's character or nature on the basis of, of one thing that they might have done, one kind of slip-up. And it's so harsh, isn't it, in sport? It might be in front of 100,000 people, people make some kind of mistake or slip-up and you forget the fact that, well, how many baskets did Michael Jordan miss? Was it 7,000 or something like that okay. or nine? thousand so you know that's what they say even the best of the greatest sports people or the most elite in any field they're going to make a hell of a lot of mistakes so let's not hang people for it well it's interesting actually using michael jordan as that example because his famous quote of course is i missed a hundred percent of the shots that i didn't take so of course being you know greatest of all time in, in basketball and all this of course bit of debate now with LeBron but uh but in my eyes anyway probably the greatest of all time. So for his saying to more be about that idea of have a go is really interesting because if anyone was maybe likely to be perfectionistic it would be someone like Jordan you'd think. Yes, wow, that's that's a really good quote, isn't it? And if you think of that symbolising other things like in terms of a project or a creative pursuit or trying to even arrange a social event that might be fun for friends or whatever, well, we're going to miss 100% of those things that we don't even attempt. So, yes, the value in having a go at something, even if it might not work out quite like 
we want it to. Well, that's one that comes up a little bit with you and me in, in terms of when we're playing golf, but we like to uh, use that saying, what is it, 99% of short putts don't go in. I can't remember who said that one, but it's a, <laughs> it is a good saying, I yeah. think. But Dad, as we mentioned at the start, and as we've spoken about a little bit, perfectionism is something that you and I relate to a little bit. And as I said at the start, we've had many conversations off air about this sort of thing. And I was wondering now if you could give us some insight into how you've overcome some of these perfectionistic tendencies in the past because, as I said, we've had plenty of conversations off air and, and I've got a lot out of it over the, over the times that we have spoken about it. So I wonder if you could just pass some of that on to our listeners now. Okay, well, I've mentioned before that I've gone through two periods of severe depression in my life and both of them were strongly related to perfectionism. The first one was when I was a third-year student at university And actually, until then, I'd been travelling quite well as a student, had pretty high standards, but didn't have to get straight A's and everything. I'd be happy enough if I was doing quite well. But there was a time when I could not function the same way that I usually would at third year university. Some major stresses happened in my life, which would have been stressful for many people. And at that stage, I was not sleeping as well, couldn't think as straight, And there was a time at the end of the year I approached a university lecturer and said, look, I just want to let you know if I don't do so well on this exam, then there are stresses going on and I want to let you know beforehand. So if I slip up in the exam and I apply for special consideration, there's a background to it. And he mentioned to me, well, look, if you sit the exam, even though you've come to see me and you fail, well, you fail, you're out of the course. So rather than take that risk, I decided to delay the exam until... I was more on top of things and so I was going to sit it a month later. But in my own mind, I took it as a failure. I took it, the fact that I delayed the exam, hadn't sat it and had a chance at passing it, hadn't passed it. In my mind, I started to become rigid and thinking, oh, that was like a failure. And when I was preparing for this exam, which was like in essay form, I'd be preparing for it over the next, say, four to six weeks. I'd start to write a sentence. I'd cross it out. I'd write another first sentence. I'd cross that out. I'd go for a walk. I'd come back. I'd start writing again. I'd write a sentence and cross it out. It wasn't good enough, wasn't clear. I really got caught up in perfectionism then. And it was very gradual that I made a recovery after becoming quite depressed at that time. I actually did sit the exam and I passed it six weeks later. But again, I felt I'd wasted so much time on it. I still wasn't thinking so straight. I'd become somewhat depressed in the meantime. And then I put very heavy standards on myself and thought that I just wasn't performing as well. And funnily enough, that first time I did see a counsellor and that helped in many ways. But one of the ways I learnt to deal with that in time was just giving myself less time to do assignments so I wouldn't be spending week after week after week crossing out sentences and trying to do it again. I had to learn to take the pressure off, sometimes by just starting to respond to an assignment maybe a couple of days beforehand, just giving myself very limited time, thinking I either failed or I didn't, hand that in, and I found that I usually passed pretty well just by cutting back the amount of time I gave myself to agonise. I'll just mention in that time, which was my fourth year of university, I met a whole subculture of worry warts in the psychology course who had similar patterns, I think, of perfectionism. They tended to be bright people who struggled over virtually every assignment and we became a bit of a support group to each other. But I recognised that there was a group of people who often felt like this, whereas I'd felt like that more like, although it was over a six-month period, but then I gradually came on from that. But then I had a very difficult time again about 10 years later. I'd been working as a senior psychologist at the hospital. There were some challenging hospital politics at the time, and this ultimately resulted some of the challenging conflicts, I might say. Different kind of things were happening as well, and I started to become depressed again. Then I became very depressed. And when I became depressed, having worked as a senior psychologist for five years before then, having been hospitalised for depression, then perfectionism came out in more full force. I thought I'd dealt with it a lot years earlier, but at that stage I was absolutely self-critical. I was ripping shreds off myself. I thought it was completely unacceptable, completely pathetic 
to be in this situation of having worked as a psychologist for 10 years, a senior psychologist for five, and here was me not even able to help myself a bit, just being stuck. Now, I was hospitalised at that period of time, and after three months, I was not making much progress. I started to make a little bit of progress by thinking, okay, in the morning, I was off work for six months, in the morning, I was thinking, just while I have a bowl of cereal, that would have taken me 10 minutes to eat a bowl of cereal normally, I will allow myself to eat this bowl of cereal for 10 minutes and not rip shreds off myself while I do that. That was the one time in the entire day I felt that I was more free of this self-criticism, like a self-critical voice, so to speak. And then I might do things like very slowly work on painting a fence where an elderly painter on the other side of the fence was going three times as fast as I was, but I thought, well, even if I do a little bit a day, that's something. I was gradually making a little bit of progress. But then I saw a very helpful, a masterful therapist, and he said, look, I think we can work on something here using what's called a two-chair technique. And he got me to play out two sides of myself, this very harsh, self-critical voice that I was really surprised how harsh it was when I spoke in that form. And in the other chair, I was more like a vulnerable, plaintive self saying, oh, I'm trying to do my best, I'm having a go at this at least. But the other side would be, that's pathetic, that's terrible kind of thing. It's like I was whipping myself with a branch, so to speak. Now, at the end of that session, the therapist said to me, surprisingly to me, he said, I think you have an imperfect solution. And he was partly relating to the fact I told him about this wheat bix thing and gradually doing a few things slowly. But also, he mentioned this key phrase. And I went out to the car in the car park. I put the key in the door lock, unlocked the car. Just as I put the key in the lock, unlocking the car, something unlocked in my mind. I thought, wait a minute, imperfect solution. That actually might be my way forward. I knew my challenges were to do with perfectionism. I thought, well, if I can make an imperfect recovery, if I can make a very public and imperfect recovery, so most of my colleagues knew I was off work, most knew I'd been in hospital, if I could deal with that, if I could deal with the seeming failure, so to speak, off work, six months, in hospital, slow, gradual recovery from depression, slower, worse recovery, slower recovery than my other people I'd helped as clients or whatever, if I could accept that about myself, then I thought there is nothing I could ever not accept about myself. So all I needed to do is to accept making a pathetic recovery, a slow, gradual recovery, falling on my face again, getting up, falling on my face, keeping going. That seemed elegant. There was an elegant solution. That was a way of dealing with perfectionism. So basically from then on, I just had this conviction that I was going to be okay. I still look to do some tasks in the morning, uh, do whatever during the day, around the house, that kind of thing, gradually a little bit more exercise. Went to the Kino Theatre in Melbourne for my Kino therapy to watch movies. That really helped as well. Take the pressure off, allow myself that time out. And basically, I was picking up bit by bit by bit by bit. I was able to return to work. When I did, I didn't expect myself necessarily to go well. I thought I'll give it a go. I'll see how it works out. And fortunately, it did work out. I recovered month by month. I found I could still do my job. I had my marbles about me still a bit and things went on from there. And ever since, this was 30 years ago, I felt a pressure was released about having to perform at a certain level and remembering how disruptive it could be to get caught up with perfectionism. So it's almost like my body learned as well. My mind and body learnt not to push myself so hard or rigidly in that direction. Again, I knew where it could end up. And quite frankly, every year after that has been kind of like a celebration of being able to return to work, do things that are worthwhile and all the rest of it because I might not have been able to return at all. Well, it seems to me from what you're saying there that there's an element to which in dealing with perfectionism, you're essentially trying to create systems to be able to put a spanner in the works of the perfectionistic thinking. It's not as if you're necessarily going to be able to get rid of the perfectionistic thinking. It's looking at a way to almost place yourself in a situation of such imperfection that it's no longer congruent with perfectionistic thinking. 
Is that maybe an oversimplified way of looking at it? But is there a little bit about that, which is looking at creating systems which aren't about getting rid of perfectionistic thinking. It's more about almost implanting something over the top, which is going to allow you to be more functional with that personality laying behind you. Well, look, I suppose it worked for me like um, the idea of just coming back to the mantra of like an imperfect solution. That's fine. So doing things imperfectly, that's fine. But in practice, what I found is just a, a joy recovering from depression and being able to do anything, being able to do exercise, being able to get to play tennis without antidepressant medication that led me to serve the ball five feet out nearly every time kind of thing, uh, to be able to certainly get back to work and socialising and everyday things. And it was hard to take any of that for granted, having lost it for a period of time and thought I might never get it back. And so basically it was a lot easier just to have a go at things, do things, do things for the enjoyment of them, do them for the satisfaction that came from them, and not to have to get too head up about the alternatives or you know, about how it all went. So, again, really helped address for me that issue about your worth's not so much related to what you do or just how you do it. It's actually the fact of being able to do stuff compared to being depressed. It's such a bonus being able to do stuff. Just celebrate that. And I suppose you tend to focus a little bit more on the kind of things that are rewarding to you, that are worthwhile when you recognise how unpleasant life can be with a deep depression and going through hell. You might as well focus on things that are meaningful or worthwhile to you and have a go at that and get the enjoyment from that. Well, it's interesting as well because hearing you talk about that and obviously being in that period of depression that was so linked to perfectionism, you know, you're not necessarily someone who has low standards. And to me, that's something that sort of comes across there is that being someone who had such perfectionistic tendencies, it wasn't as if in getting over those perfectionistic tendencies, your standards decreased at all. Maybe it was just the emphasis that you placed on the particular outcome at that time in the way that you did it maybe stood in the way of allowing you to achieve some of those standards which you still had at that high level even though you'd been able to transcend some of these perfectionistic tendencies. Yes, now this is an issue that's very relevant to many clients I see too because at first if you bring up issues of perfectionism and maybe challenging the unrelenting standards, a number of people say something to the effect but doesn't that mean that I'll just do things in a very ordinary lesser kind of way that I won't have a go at things much that it won't be so worthwhile what I do and basically what I say to people is once you're about 30 years of age a lot of your personality characteristics are quite established if you've got a foundation in your personality then you're not going to let go of certain aspects of yourself unless it's not so much working for you so in other words if you're a fairly conscientious person you're going to remain fairly conscientious you are going to strive for things in certain ways even if you don't aim for perfect if you aim to do things more optimally or do it well or still strive but don't get caught up in the rigidity of it having to be perfect you'll still perform at a high level and many people find that's the case and I'll mention as an aside what was so helpful for me is a year or two after I recovered from depression I went to do a master's course for a number of reasons. So even though I was already a clinical psychologist, I thought I'd do a clinical master's course, partly to see how I went with the academic side of things. And ironically, even though I was doing that, say, part-time on top of full-time work, and so I contained the time I spent on it, the marks I got in that master's course were just as good as the marks I had in undergraduate uni. Earlier on when I was doing it my best, I, I couldn't really, on paper, have done much better in terms of my marks in the master's course, but I had a different attitude to it that was kind of like taking the pressure off. It was like an an experiment with not having to do things to the nth degree, and I couldn't when I was doing full-time work do things to the nth degree with the additional master's course, but when I saw the results coming, I thought, well, why drive yourself into the ground when I was enjoying the learning, really enjoying the contact with colleagues, the other students that... We still meet to this day as, as a group every now and then. It was so worthwhile. But not having to, again, drive yourself into the ground. And it, was, it was really good to be able to know that um, could still perform at a, a very good level. Well, that's one there that also comes up in sport a little bit. Is we hear in sport this idea of detaching from the result. Quite often in, for example, AFL finals, it's something that comes up a little bit in terms of 
You know, it might be the first week of finals, you might have been the best team all year, but if you're thinking about the grand final in the first week of finals, then you're in real trouble. <laughs> and it's interesting to hear, for example, AFL coaches, you know, Premier League soccer coaches, even tennis players, but quite often we see it in sport that they really detach from the result in terms of saying, look, it's not about winning, it's not about losing, I just want to be able to say that I did my best. It's one thing I think this year, Nick Kyrgios, for those who watch the tennis, it was something that really stood out to me that he was saying this year more than I've ever noticed it from him in terms of, you know, I'll be happy if I lose. It's just about, you know, being out there and doing the very best that I can in that situation. And 99 times out of 100, people perform better when they have detached from the result like that. And it is more about just launching into a situation being confident that I've given it my very best with all that I had at that time rather than thinking I have to win, I have to achieve this score or this result. It is so interesting in sport, I think, how often the detachment from the outcome seems to offer up a a much better performance. Yes, and that overlaps with topics we've had on recent podcasts about goal setting and and what are your hopes. Ultimately, it gets back to what are you on about? What is your purpose with doing things? What are the values that you're looking to put into place? And they can include being competent, being helpful, being supportive, being well-connected with other people in your relationships. It's thinking, what are these key kind of things? Then we can look at acting on those kind of things, but for what reason, for what purpose, and not get hung up on thinking it's just for some kind of external result or external approval. It's partly because we're looking to express ourselves in these different parts of life and live life more fully. I wonder now then... How do you differentiate between, for example, what's healthy striving? As we said, it's a good thing to want to strive and to want to succeed in certain areas. But then how do we differentiate between that and what's more prohibitive in terms of the perfectionistic tendencies? Well, I think one way of looking at this is the contrast between what's called harmonious passion an obsessive passion, and we'll put up a link to a handout on this on the podcast at episode page two, but harmonious passion is when you have some drive to do something, but it fits in with your life in certain ways. It still allows you time for your relationships. It still allows you time for your leisure time. It's not like it's sucking up all your time to do one kind of thing. Whereas obsessive passion is when you get over-focused on something. You might feel passionate about it, you might feel driven to do it, but it can become a bit joyless because you're feeling very stressed when you're doing it or you're missing out on socialising, you're missing out on other leisure activities. And so there's a rigidity to it. So I think it's partly how it fits in with your life in a certain kind of balance. When things feel like they're getting out of balance, even if you might be achieving objectively in a certain kind of area, it's time to maybe take pause and think of whether there's a different overall game plan that you could have. Another kind of thing I think is what we call internal versus external motivation. So internal motivation comes from within. So it's what we talked about in terms of your values, your your purpose, your goals, you know, your big why. Why for me is this worth doing? as opposed to external motivation. I'll do this for the reward. I'll do this for the kudos. I'll do this because people will think I'm great. I'll do it purely because I'll have, like, say, 100,000 likes or whatever it might be that people are striving toward. Internal motivation is more lasting, leads to more satisfaction, and it ties in more with a person's, if you like, core identity and what people are really on about underneath it all. And the main other thing I'll say is with healthy striving, people might be putting a lot of effort into things, but it's not having such a negative impact, say, on their health or relationships, say, leading to burnout so much. Whereas with prohibitive perfectionism or when it becomes a real pitfall, so to speak, that's when it's often affecting our health, our well-being, our leisure time, our relationships. And so the extra gain, if any, that we're getting from the massive extra effort we're putting in doesn't justify the costs to us in other ways. And we spoke about it a little bit before with that idea of an imperfect solution. But now I wonder, what are some other strategies for managing with perfectionistic tendencies? Well, I think one of the things is challenging the word should, like you mentioned earlier on, whenever we're thinking should this, should that, this driven quality to it. Questioning that, also questioning what we might call 
catastrophizing. Oh my God, it would be terrible if this turned out poorly. Oh, I must have this work out a certain way or that would be awful. Oh, how dreadful if uh, this wasn't seen to be a wonderful piece of work or whatever it was. So it's that kind of extra strain, that extra anxiety-producing stress from catastrophizing. Another technique I like is if you're doing something like maybe giving a talk or it might be creating some artwork or having a go at a new recipe for friends and you're wondering how it will turn out, maybe concerned how your efforts will turn out, thinking in terms of big I or little I. For example, many people have a fear of public speaking and they might think, oh, what if I make an idiot of myself? How terrible that would be. I'm doing this, feeling this pressure. Uh, how will I seem to other people? It's like your big eye, your whole ego or self-esteem might be involved in it. Rather than realising this is just one little aspect of your life. Your capacity to give a speech or to cook lasagna or to hit a tennis forehand or to produce an artwork, all of these things are just one aspect of your life along with being a brother or a sister, a friend, a neighbour, a father, a son, your ability at reading, your ability at writing, your ability at whatever, creating music. All of these are aspects of ourselves. So the big eye, me as a person, is made up of a huge range of little eyes. And whenever we think we're on the line, like say, if you like, we've got our ego coming up a bit and concerned how we might perform... It's remembering, like if you're doing a talk in front of other people or whatever, just think it's a little eye that's doing that. And I think that can take the pressure off and recognising that a lot of a satisfying life is having a wide range of little eyes that give you some kind of satisfaction. Well, that idea of challenging catastrophes and, and challenging your thinking like that, well, I remember the first time that we had a conversation about this and it was actually, it was, it was almost something that was a little bit profound to me in a way in terms of the fact that your thoughts don't necessarily mediate reality. That's where I think I, I like that exercise, the little eye. It seems to do with that idea of removing the personality aspect from it. If we're using the little eye, we're not necessarily extrapolating it out to the degree to which it's, you know, we're, we're forever going to be defined by what we did in that one situation with that one behaviour. But I think when we talk about the big eye, that's where it does have that more all-encompassing where it links to our personality beyond more than just a single behaviour. Yes, now you remind me, I might be misremembering this, but I think this is the case. I think that discussion of big eye and little eye came from an article called Toward an Egoless State of Being. Now, when you think about it, egoless, getting your ego out of it, whereas big eye is getting your ego in it, hey... I'm on the line here, I'm being measured in some way by how will I hit this tennis shot or cook this lasagna or whatever it might be. So the pressure's on with any little thing that you do. But if you go towards an egoless state of being, it's a bit like the tennis ball was struck, the lasagna was cooked, uh, the painting was drawn or something like that. And so you don't have to get sucked into, oh, it was me who did this, was it good, bad or indifferent? So it's more that notion of being engaged in life, in the flow of life, if you like, rather than stopping and making judgments about yourself in relation to that. Well, that reminds me of something I heard the other day, and it was actually another podcaster talking about it, and he said something along the lines of, oh, how liberating is it when you can take your ego out of things? And to me, that just resonated partly because of the way that he said it. He said it so almost flippantly and irreverently and matter-of-factly that it left no room to disagree with him. And it was such an almost profound comment in that way. Yes, it sort of, when you think about it, I suppose it also helps you have your focus outside rather than inside, rather than looking inside and gauging how you're going. It's responding to the world outside when you're not so caught up in your ego. Well, it's one thing that we spoke a little bit about before in terms of even if someone is at the avoidance stage of perfectionism, they may have been giving up on things, but it's not as if their feelings are any less intense towards what they want to achieve in that situation. So I imagine there's times when arousal management is going to be a really big thing to allow us to detach from the result in that way. So I wonder if you could help us with some techniques for arousal management to do with perfectionism. 
Well, one of the main things is acknowledging that perfectionism tends to go with anxiety. Anxiety about performance, anxiety about approval, success versus failure. So part of that is anything that does help reduce our arousal level also can help with perfectionism. So it does help to have some strategies like a, a mindfulness or a meditation or a relaxation or yoga strategy. Some kind of practice like that is helpful to bring our arousal level down, if you like, which also helps us have our thoughts more in balance. Well, it seems to me as well with perfectionism that it's likely to occur, for example, in one main area at a time. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but for example, it might be that in someone's work life, they're very perfectionistic. In someone's sporting ability, they're very perfectionistic. So I wonder if a strategy with that as well could be even just something as simple as spending time in an area of life that you don't have such perfectionistic ideals about. Yes, look, I think that's a very helpful thing. Again, it comes back to looking at a range of areas of our lives and not overly sacrificing some areas because we're maybe over-focusing on others. But I will bring it back to what you're saying there as well about some areas we can be perfectionistic in. One example might be people could be perfectionistic in their parenting of an infant. So in their work they might not have been so much or in other ways or in pursuing a sport or some other kind of craft, but maybe in raising a child or an infant, they might have been really expecting themselves to be balanced in everything they were doing, always fully attentive. And I remember an expression by a fellow Winnicott, a paediatrician who helped many parents with this notion. He talked about the notion of good enough parenting. He talked about good enough parenting being based on mended failures. The parent would not always be attentive to that infant who was uncomfortable or hungry or having real difficulty getting to sleep. The parent's not always going to be there protecting a child every second of the day and a child would not develop so well if they were always so completely protected, if you like. So a child develops further by mended failures where at times they'll be dealing with discomfort. But then, soon enough... They feel, oh, I am supported enough, the world's secure enough and the infant can grow confidently with that. But for the parent, it takes the pressure off, this notion of good enough parenting. And there are many other areas where being good enough can be helpful. We can even strive further and aim for optimal rather than perfect. Optimal still allows for mistakes. We can think this is very important, I'm going to really put in a lot of effort here but not get sucked into looking at perfectionism. Well, was it Tal Ben-Shahar who wrote The Pursuit of Perfect, one of the preeminent books about perfectionism? He has that notion of optimalism versus perfectionism and I think that's something that relates there as well. But the other thing that seems to really come in here and it relates partly to that idea of the big eye and the little eye but that idea of extrapolating across your personality from one behaviour or one outcome that's that idea of a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. If we were to have a fixed mindset in a situation, that does relate more to that idea of because something is a circumstance now, it is therefore likely to always be like that. It's that idea of someone being weak for not performing, for example. But yeah. I wonder if how does perfectionism or how does maybe curbing perfectionism relate to a growth mindset? Okay, well, first of all, if we looked at the idea of a fixed mindset... If a child is told that they've done well on an exam because they're smart, that can actually put the pressure on. What if they really struggle with a future exam? Does that mean that they're not smart? It can put the pressure on. So actually, sometimes if children are, for example, struggling with certain problems, they'll give up quicker if they've been told that they're smart. Or an athlete might give up quicker if they're told that they're you know, super fast or talented or strong. So it's better often, say academically, for someone to get the feedback, you did well on that test because you tried very hard. You, know, you did your homework and you practised for a long time. You really put in an effort. That's why you've done well. That's what we call a growth mindset, where you attribute your performance, if you like, to your effort. And no matter how well or poorly you do, the notion is by putting in effort, you can keep on improving. 
Good, bad, indifferent, don't even have to get caught up in those kind of labels. It's the benefit of continuing to grow, growth mindset, continuing to put in time. If you're an athlete, it's not just whether you're too slow or fast enough or something like that. However fast or slow or strong or indifferent, you put in more training that helps further a growth mindset. So again, rather than looking at the labels or characteristics we might put on ourselves, the more we look at our efforts and how we're developing in certain directions, we're developing our creativity, our understanding, our strength, our speed. When you look at it that way, then again, that can take the ego out of it with labels. It's just an encouragement to keep on putting in effort in areas that are important to us. Well, the other thing about that is that if we're too focused on a fixed mindset, if we're too focused on the outcome and things become too black and white that way, we can lose some of the benefit of making mistakes. In terms of, we spoke about that thing before about either learning to fail or failing to learn, but I think it was Steve Jobs who said something along the lines of, the creative person is not the person who comes up with the most creative ideas. It's the person who comes up with 20 creative ideas and only the 20th might work. But because they've had the persistence to come up with 20 ideas in the first place, they eventually get to the 20th idea. He said it much more eloquently than that. I had a much better way of saying it. But it was something along those lines. Yeah, it reminds me also of Thomas Edison with the light bulb. What did he say about 10,000 attempts? Something like rather than 10,000 failures, he learned about 10,000 ways that it didn't work yeah. that helped him get onto the one that did. So then, Dad, do you have any tips to help people stop getting too caught up in outcomes? Because it's one thing to say that we don't want to overfocus on some of this sort of stuff, but as we were saying before, there's so many things, whether it be in work and in our society that almost pushes towards elements of perfectionism. So I wonder if there's any tips or strategies that you've come across to help people not get so caught up on what exactly that end result will be. Okay, so not being so outcome focused, but really looking at our big why, what we're on about and you know, acting on our values. I think that comes back to a core thing that we've raised many times in this podcast because it's central to positive psychology and well-being, the character strengths. If we know what our top character strengths are and we act on them in our various roles in life and especially our important roles and where we look to devote our time in our relationships, in our parenting, in our work, in our creative pursuits, if we're acting on our top strengths, if they're courage or love of knowledge or persistence or creativity or it might be to do with spirituality, it might be to do with our use of humour, our kindness, our capacity to love, if we're acting on our top character strengths, we've described before how people can identify their top character strengths and we'll include a link to that on this episode page as well, then if we're acting on these, if you like, internal motivators and values, if our top strength is creativity, then anything that we do that allows for that to be expressed, we're likely to have that internal motivation and follow through. If we're acting on courage, if we're acting on our sense of citizenship, these things are going to be motivating Along the way, like the journey is going to be motivating apart from any kind of destination as well. What we're doing and how we're doing it, if we're acting on our character strengths in the service of other people in our various roles in life, then we're likely to be engaged in what we're doing, experiencing a sense of flow. And that's before any outcome might be expected to be achieved. We can work on long-term goals and when we're acting on our strengths, we don't know how the outcome might be of some major long-term project or other social contributions that we might be making. But the activity itself is worthwhile when we're acting on our top character strengths. I think it's interesting also when we look at our top character strengths, even then, not using them 100%. 100% courage is recklessness. Whereas it's good to be courageous rather than timid, but you can go too far in that as well. If we have 100% persistence, that's probably rigidity and getting caught up with wasted energy and all the rest of it. So when it boils down to it, even with our character strengths, the best in us, we can overdo that. And that's where Aristotle spoke of a golden mean, using a balance of our top strengths. So using courage, being prepared to speak up rather than being reckless or being timid. 
even when using the best in us, we can still use it in a moderate way rather than an extreme way. And that's where I imagine as well, there's potentially going to be times where people who are perfectionistic are feeling not worthy for one reason or another, but that idea of using our top strength with a bottom strength, I think could come in there too, because with some of the stuff that we've been speaking about, perfectionism, I think at times people who are perfectionistic can be faced with their flaws, for lack of a better term, in terms of they're really noticing where they've failed in certain areas. But coming back to that idea of seeing our character strengths, using some of our top character strengths to bolster some of the ones that are down the bottom of our list and having a bit of an interplay with some of those things as well, that can almost help us to recalibrate and at least understand a little bit more about our personal makeup as opposed to the fact that it's just black and white and we didn't achieve this and so we're inferior in a certain way, which is that fixed mindset like we spoke about before. I think that's a very nice example of using a blend. Just say if your top strength was use of humour. And a lower strength was persistence, maybe because of procrastinating or giving up early with perfectionism. How can we use our humour to maybe have a bit of a lighter approach at the task that we're taking on? Seeing it with a little bit of fun, not taking ourselves so seriously with a bit of humour, that might help persist more. So I like that idea of using a top strength to help us bolster a lower one. And now just to finish, Dad, it seems to me that the idea of a hero's journey comes into a little bit of perfectionism. We've spoken a little bit about it on the podcast before, but the four stages of a hero's journey, that second stage is the dark night of the soul. And it seems to me from what we've spoken about today that if someone has perfectionistic tendencies and maybe those perfectionistic tendencies are getting quite on top of them, then when they're in that period of the dark night of the soul, they might find it tough to get over whatever obstacles they were facing at that time. They may see it as a, an overall failure as opposed to a setback or an obstacle that they have to get over. Yes, when you're in the dark night of the soul, it can be hard to get a sense of future and how things go. But I think it really helps to understand that there are these life cycles that can happen where something tips the balance and things start to go wrong, being caught up in the dark night of the soul. But in time, that will tend to lead to coming out of it in some way. Maybe it's an aha experience, maybe it's an epiphany, and then consolidating that change, if you like. And look, I will mention too, whereas I mentioned earlier on about the difficulty of going through a depression, being hospitalised for it six months off work, I will never regret that time I went through 30 years ago because it was an emancipation from putting extra rigid expectations on myself because I saw where they could lead. And funnily enough, one thing that came out of it, I mentioned chemotherapy, going to see a movie every week as I did at that time, I kept that going basically as a leisure interest for about 30 years since. And at times I've looked at other people who've maybe not had such a struggle in their lives and how they've kept on striving, maybe achieving a whole lot. But I get a sense at times that there's a relentless or an unrelenting pressure that they have on them. And I think sometimes, gee, you know, I might have been caught in that pattern for a lot longer had I not gone through that depression many years ago. So sometimes there's a value or benefit that can come from even what seems like a major crisis or it might seem like a major failure or coming apart at the time, however we might experience that crisis. Again, it's part of the different cycles of life. We can gain something from even the most difficult times and we see many of our clients respond to situations like that when they pursue therapy over a period of time, maybe go through a severe depression. Most people get back to their usual self, having learnt something valuable in the meantime. And that's where, for our next podcast, Dad, we'll unpack this a little bit further in terms of that idea of the hero's journey. It's something that I'm really interested to talk to you a bit more about. We've spoken a fair bit about it in recent times, and we did an episode about it on my podcast recently that's recently been uploaded as well. But it's a funny one talking about perfectionism today, Dad. I know uh, on the last podcast... I said I'd pop my new podcast, the link to my new podcast up there on the podcast page. And 
Dad, you won't believe it. I went to release it on the Monday and I was too bloody perfectionistic about it. And I'm sitting there finessing over it here and there. So it took me two days to get it up on the podcast page. Maybe a little bit of an insight into the perfectionism that certainly I deal with every so often. But it is up there now. I will just also take the opportunity for the shameless plug and let everyone know that, uh, yeah, my new podcast is up there now. I'll put it on today's as well. But very much looking forward to getting into the hero's journey with you next time in the, in the next Sykes Bills podcast. Dad. Right. Well, congratulations on getting it up there. That's the main <laughs> thing. And I really like the theme of your podcast, individuation and becoming more fully yourself. Well, it's really worth looking to challenge some of the pitfalls of perfectionism to help become more fully yourself. Well, absolutely, Dad. And I suppose just to finish off with a quote that I heard during the week, and I think it relates to exactly what you're talking about there, the idea of having a go and not getting caught up on exactly what is a barrier or an obstacle for you at that time. And the quote goes, it's better to have a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without one. I think it was a Confucius quote, that one. So obviously speaks to the notion that it's better to muddle through Give it a crack at having the diamond, even if it's going to be a flawed diamond. It's better than just settling for the pebble that may have been in front of you. It may have been easy to obtain, but at the end of the day, it's not going to scratch that deeper itch for you. Sometimes it's worth striving. Just nice to do it in balance. And we'll put all of the resources for today's podcast up on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. Thanks for chatting with me today, Dad. We'll speak to you again next time. I enjoyed it, Rowan.